first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Hey guys, Trace here, and welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today we're going to rebroadcast episode 25, which is all about fears what happens in our brains, how to treat it, why we have it in the first place, and we've even got a special guest. It's going to be super interesting, so let's get right into it. What's up with fear? It seems like a pretty obvious question, but fear is a chain reaction that starts at the outset of a stressful situation, and it ends with the release of chemicals that can cause all sorts of things to happen in your body. Things like a racing heart, fast breathing, energized muscles that are just ready to act if need be. There's a lot going on in the brain, actually, when you experience fear, and the fear response is basically 100% autonomic. It just happens. No one chooses to be scared at a certain point in time. It just happens to us, even though it's us doing it. There are dozens of areas in the brain involved in fear processing and fear response, but the five main parts of the brain that organize or process your fear response are these. The thalamus, which decides where to send incoming sensory data from your eyes, your ears, your mouth, and your skin, so on and so forth. The sensory cortex, which interprets the data sent from the thalamus. The hippocampus, which stores and retrieves conscious memories and basically means that it's trying to process the stimuli that you're getting. So a spider or a rabid dog or something would be processed by the hippocampus to establish context for that fear. And then the amygdala decodes the emotions you are experiencing and determines whether or not the stimuli is possibly a threat or something else. It's also in charge of storing your fear memories or your imprints of fear. And finally, the so-called lizard brain part of us, the most primitive area in the human brain, the hypothalamus, which then triggers our fight or flight response, whether or not we're going to act and attack something or if we're going to get the heck out of there and run away. There are actually paths that the fear takes as well. We call them the low road and the high road. The low road is sort of like, you know, a scared kid, reacting without a lot of thinking. Whereas the high road is the responsible adult, you know, thinking things through before making a plan and acting then. Both the high and low road are working at the same time to process any kind of stimuli and determine whether or not it's scary and what to do about it. So let's break this down. Say you hear a loud crash downstairs in your kitchen or something as you're laying in bed. The low road process, it would assume that there is someone in the house and they're trying to get you and you need to get out of there. As soon as you hear the sound or you see motion, your brain sends that sensory data into the thalamus. The thalamus doesn't know whether or not the signals it's receiving are danger yet. But since danger is a possibility, it sends that data right onto the amygdala, the fear center, and the amygdala receives the neural impulses that allow you to take action and protect yourself by telling the lizard brain hypothalamus to go, fight or flight, let's do this. The high road is a little bit longer process, and that considers all of the different options, not just that worst case scenario, that more instinctual response. The sensory data from the crash down in the kitchen is sent to the thalamus, just like on the low road. But instead of immediately sending that information to the amygdala and 
finding out if it's something to be afraid of, the thalamus is all like, look, sensory cortex, what's going on here? What's up? Let's get some meaning. The sensory cortex determines that there is more than one plausible interpretation of that sensory data and then passes it along to the hippocampus and says, hey, man, give me some context here. What's going on? The hippocampus is all like, okay, I've heard that noise before, I think. Maybe there was a pan or something that I left on the edge of the counter. Maybe that noise was dangerous before, maybe not. They compare that to other noises that you've heard and other stimuli. They might come into the hippocampus during this process, things like noises outside. Did I leave a window open earlier? Do I own a cat that might have knocked something down? The hippocampus takes all of this information into account and determines whether or not there is danger. And if it determines the wind you know, knocked something over, that sends that message to the amygdala, and the amygdala is all like, okay, hypothalamus, don't worry about it, fight or flight, go back to sleep. This all happens instantly, as you might have been able to guess, and again, the paths are being done simultaneously. But sometimes, in a time of crisis, our brains don't follow their own rules. They don't think through this whole path. When it's under severe threat, the brain can completely change the way it processes information and skip over some of these steps. According to Eric Hollander, professor of psychiatry at Montefiore Albert Einstein School of Medicine in New York, the normal long pathways through the orbitofrontal cortex where people evaluate situations in a logical and conscious fashion and consider the risks and benefits of different behaviors can get short-circuited, which is why we have a few seconds of terror and just that visceral response before we're able to kind of calm down and assess what's going on. That's what happens with fear in the brain. It's a pretty complicated process, and it happens really fast. How long can fear actually stick with you, though? You know, how scared do you have to be to have it affect you for a significant amount of time? And are those things that we're afraid of, like being afraid of snakes or being afraid of the dark, are those things, like, embedded in us? Fear is part of our DNA. How is it that fear can just cripple us so much? It's like our worst trait. We are built to be afraid of certain things. And one fear that a lot of us experience, especially as kids, is fear of the dark. Some adults still have this. And why are we afraid of the dark? Like, there's nothing in the dark that will specifically hurt you. Your bedroom in the dark is still your bedroom. But for some reason, we get afraid of it. We used to have to be on high alert at night. Like, really high alert because of predators. Consider this. 60% of lion attacks in Tanzania between 1988 and 2009 were between 6 p.m. and 9.45 p.m., so dusk to dark, because lions are nocturnal hunters. They spend the heat of the day trying to stay cool, and as the sun starts to drop, they head out on the hunt. So it's no wonder that we would have this innate fear of the dark. We don't want to be attacked. We don't want to be eaten you know, not necessarily by a lion, but by any predator. After generations and generations of predators attacking at night, the humans who survived in order to produce us today were more likely to have a healthy fear of the dark, more alert at night. There's another theory from Sigmund Freud that suggests that our fear of darkness is linked to separation anxiety and the absence of our mothers. The yearning felt in darkness is converted to a fear of darkness. That's also another theory. And then, you know, there are other things that we're afraid of that are inborn as well, which sometimes might not make a lot of sense. Like, why would you be afraid of a snake or a spider that you maybe never have seen in real life? Doesn't make a lot of sense. 
You can blame our ancestors for this fear as well. According to a study from Columbia University, arachnophobia dates back to the early evolutionary phases of humans in Africa where venomous spiders posed a pretty serious threat. Victims of some spider bites were left incapacitated for weeks, exposed to danger. So even though a spider might seem harmless today and we might never actually interact with one, our DNA, our inborn fears, still have traces of these as major threats. And they don't necessarily manifest as like, oh my God, a spider. It's parts of the way that the spider moves, part of the way that they might look, colors and different shapes, things that our brain can recognize in patterns. And we pull all of that information and we're like, I don't like this. This is not good. I need to get out of here. Another study in biological psychology suggests that that same heightened awareness applies when it comes to things like snakes. Snakes also posed a threat to early ancestors, and because of it, they learned to avoid them to survive and continue to live so they could breed us. That biological psychology study involved 24 non-phobic Norwegian women, 18 to 31 years old. The women were shown two sets of color photos while an EEG measured their brain activity, their brain waves. 600 pictures were shown to these women, and the pictures showed snakes and spiders and small birds. And it turned out that the snake images evoked a significantly stronger brain response, which isn't all that surprising. Snakes can be pretty scary to some people. And it seems that it isn't our fault that we were afraid of these little critters. We may never actually see many of these in city life, but we have these built-in fears, which makes me wonder, are there fears that we're ingraining into ourselves now that future generations might suffer? Like, what poses the biggest threats day-to-day? There's things like traffic, You know, we know not to walk into the street. Are kids going to grow up with a fear of something like that? What about this one? This is a big one. Fear of losing access to your cell phone. What if you lose your mobile phone or you forget it somewhere or, you know, you don't know where it is? It's like Gollum in the ring. You just start freaking out. Where's my phone? And you lose your cell phone, it's just like this visceral response and it it keeps being reminded to you throughout the day because you just look for your phone. You grab your pocket and you're like, oh, I wonder what time it is. Better grab my phone. Oh my God, it's not there. It ties into the fear of missing out because you don't necessarily know what's going on in the world about memory recall because we don't know people's phone numbers or maybe our calendar for the day. We don't connect with our friends either via phone or text message or social media. And it also can keep you from finding directions or feeling lost, access to personal or public information. So much stuff goes into the cell phone. And if you're missing it, That's a pretty big fear response. Are we going to pass that huge fear response on to our kids? Their kids? I don't know. I think I need to buy a notebook. That is a serious cocktail of fears. It's pretty serious. So some fears make sense. Some help us survive, but some don't really make sense and don't seem to serve a lot of evolutionary purpose. Like clowns, right? Clowns are the stuff of nightmares, They're supposed to be, you know, fun and like, oh, fun at the party. Nope. 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 No. Clowns have this weird fear that for some reason people experience. And there's, you know, some historical reasons for this, perhaps. Medieval fools, their job, they were designed to remind us of our own mortality, our animal nature, of how unreasonable and ridiculous and petty we can be. But clowns are, you know, they're always happy. They're always smiling. But Harvard Medical School psychiatrist Stephen Schalzman explains, clowns in the Middle Ages, if they didn't make the king laugh, 
paid a steep price. Some jesters were mutilated to make them smile all the time. They would have the muscles cut that enabled their mouth to frown so they'd always be smiling. Do you want to know how I got these scars? That sound familiar? Yikes. Then there's the first clown ever. In the early 1800s, Joey Grimaldi created a standard clown mask and became one of the first celebrities. But with fame comes a price. The public was highly aware of this man, and he had not a great personal life behind his mask. When his first wife died, it it was covered in the press, and it was followed by his alcoholic son. And that exposed these happy-go-lucky entertainers for being real people. And we can't just trust a painted smile. We have to speculate what they're hiding behind it. And that goes back to what Alan Moore said in the amazing book, The Watchmen. Man goes to the doctor. He says he's depressed. Says life seems harsh and cruel. Says he feels all alone in a threatening world where what lies ahead is vague and uncertain. Doctor says treatment is simple. The great clown Pagliacci is in town tonight. Go and see him. That should pick you up. Man bursts into tears and says, But doctor, I am Pagliacci. All of this doesn't really vogue today, right? Clowns are scary, but I don't think that they're scary because of medieval times. I'm just kind of going here. John Wayne Gacy, he was a serial killer who dressed as a clown in the 70s. He was caught... And about the same time in the early 80s, missing children were beginning to show up on billions of milk cartons around the country, and fear started to spread through the United States, and perhaps people connected the serial killer clown guy to the missing children. And all of these things created this perfect storm of fear conditioning. You know, any clown, any stranger could be John Wayne Gacy. So clowns could be scary because they remind us of our mortality, the forced smiles, the faults of human nature, the uncertainty of strangers behind a mask, stranger danger, you know? At some point, that recurring fear is, of course, reinforced by stories and movies and the media. And then that fear is conditioned and reinforced again and again and again. But what about movies like Stephen King's It? You know, that tickles our fear of clowns, but... We do that to ourselves. We're doing that on purpose. Why would we do that? We all, I mean, or at least a good amount of us, have had an experience of getting scared and feeling like amped and just like kind of liking that negative feeling of fear. But what makes some of us love it and others, you know, not so much? Dr. Margie Kerr, a professor at Robert Morris University and Chatham University, explains that not everyone enjoys being afraid. And she says, I don't think it's a stretch to say that no one wants to experience a truly life-threatening situation. She goes on to say that to really enjoy a scary situation, we have to know we're in a safe environment. It's all about triggering that amazing fight-or-flight response and to experience that flood of adrenaline, endorphins, dopamine. But to do so, you have to do it in a completely safe space. Also, Professor David Zald from Vanderbilt University said one of the main hormones released during or following scary stimuli is dopamine. Everybody loves dopamine. It's the hormone that makes us feel great. But as it turns out, some individuals may get more of a kick from this dopamine response than other people do. Some people think that brains lack what Professor Zald describes as breaks on the dopamine release and the reuptake in the brain. In other words, Some people are going to really enjoy thrilling, scary situations, and others, not so much. 
Glenn Sparks, a professor of communication who studies the media's effects on people from Purdue University, said that only about a third of people will seek out scary entertainment. I am not one of that third. The other third actively avoid it, not one of that third either, but the rest occupy a middle ground where they can handle a scary situation up to a certain threshold, but they're more interested in testing that boundary. I'm probably in there somewhere. Obviously, when talking about how we are drawn towards fear and towards being scared, like we have to talk about horror movies. Even for people that really enjoy a good horror movie, there can be lingering effects of negative emotions because of the distressing feelings that are stored in the brain's amygdala. The amygdala, as you may recall, is sort of like the fear center of the brain. It's where fear is kind of imprinted so we can compare things later. So let's give an example. How long did it take you to get back into the water after watching Jaws for the first time? Did Hostel, the movie make you not want to stay in a hostel anymore? Do you know, like, there was actually paramedics called during The Exorcist? People were at theaters freaking out, who fainted. They went into hysterics while watching The Exorcist. They had to call the paramedics. And yet, people kept going and watching all these movies. Maybe not hostile, but the other two. This brings us to the phenomenon known as excitation transfer. When scared, the body undergoes a lot of changes because of a scary situation. We talked a little bit about this earlier. And what happens in the brain when your body is spooked is one thing, but your body is going through changes as well. But when you're scared, your heart rate increases, which is kind of obvious. I think everybody probably knows that already. But your breathing rate increases as well. Your muscles are going to tense up, and a bunch of other involuntary responses happen. And this is all preparing you to act even if you're just watching a movie and there's no way you're going to act except maybe to eat more popcorn. And these things aren't necessarily pleasant on their own, but the feeling that replaces these harsh body responses after the excitement wears off is what we love and what people keep coming back for. We get this immense sense of relief, this kind of elation. These positive feelings are way stronger than the negative feelings of getting scared. Plus, a lot of people have a sense of accomplishment. They made it through this thing. They conquered their fear. We all love feeling like we held our own in a scary situation, and it's a good self-esteem boost to be like, yes, I made it through this haunted house, or I, you know, watched Saw 5, or whatever it is that you gets you into that place. It's a sense of accomplishment, and horror movies are a big part of that. Horror movies often feature a lot of gratuitous sex as well, and that ain't no accident. In a 1986 experiment, teenage boys and girls were required to watch scary movies in pairs. One of the members of the pair was instructed to act a certain way, either conforming to gender roles or rejecting them. The other person in the pair had no idea that they were instructed to do that. So the research found that when the girls acted scared, their male counterpart found them more attractive. But when the girls talked about how lame the movie was, they weren't perceived as more attractive. On the flip side, as you can imagine, the ladies were more attracted to the guys who acted brave and unfazed by the movie's imagery, whereas if they acted scared, they found them less attractive. It's not exactly a huge surprise, and yet it's super compelling if you think about it, because when people experience things together, like fear, that creates memories and imprints on their brains. They bond which is why people like going to scary movies together. Surviving these crazy or stressful situations like 
fraternity hazing and sorority parties and you name it. I'm Yes, I equated hazing and parties. It sometimes can be crazy like that. Even roller coasters and thrill parks can cause people to bond. It doesn't have to be super insane, but these emotions can imprint on us. Have you ever had an experience like that? Do you have friends who are like that? Do you have you know friendships that are built on these experiences? But hold that thought because I have to tell you about these socks that I'm wearing right now. They're awesome called Bombas, and they're the most comfortable socks in the history of feet with arch support systems that provide extra support where you need it most and a cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without the added bulkiness. These Bombas feel like a hug around my foot. All of my other socks just don't seem good enough now. Go to bombas.com slash seeker, use the code seeker, and you'll get 20% off your first order of Bombas socks. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash seeker, code seeker. You get 20% off your first order. But what if we didn't have fear? What if we could just turn that process in the brain off, not have fear at all? Go get a new job, learn a new hobby, ask out that person you've been eyeballing at the coffee shop, move to a foreign country. All of those things we associate with fear, but that's not really the same thing. If you didn't have any fear, you'd probably die. You'd be dead right now. We know because there are folks out there whose amygdala, the part of the brain that decodes emotions like fear, it's deteriorated to a point where they don't actually feel fear anymore. So the most famous woman who doesn't feel fear has a congenital disorder that began to destroy her amygdala in her childhood. So she remembers being scared of the dark as a kid, but she doesn't really grasp the emotional concept of fear anymore. Researchers call her SM to protect her identity. Uh, Her diary outlines a world of danger that makes you wonder how she has lived this long. She describes, like, playfully handling snakes and spiders that other people would just be petrified by. She lives in not the best part of town and has been the victim, potentially, of multiple muggings. They don't always work out because even though a gun or a knife has been held to her, she's not afraid because she doesn't experience the fear. Instead, she responds in, like, witty or provoking fashion to people that are trying to mug her. Intellectually, SM gets what's happening, but... She doesn't have that activation, that fear activation that you or I might have during a mugging or when handling a poisonous spider. And then there are folks who are just scared of everything. Like, warranted or not, they are afraid of everything. And just recently, a woman in London claims that she's allergic to modern living. Specifically, she's claiming that she has a reaction to electromagnetic fields from computers and microwaves and cell phones. She claims that it gives her skin rashes and causes her eyelids to swell, and so she lives in an EMF-free zone. She painted the walls with carbon paint, covered windows with protective films, and she and her husband sleep in a silver-plated mosquito net to keep out radio waves. That is cool. It's a Faraday cage. One of my favorite phrases. Just wanted to bring that up. It's cool. It goes on and on, though. There's a whole community of people living something like this in these EMF-free zones. So, so far in our conversation on fear, we've talked mostly about individual fear responses. But you can also have kind of group fear. And when you get a bunch of people who fear something, that can be called hysteria. But there are cases where people are thinking themselves sick. It's called the nocebo effect. It's similar to the placebo effect. Placebo effect, you know, you're taking a medication and you think you're getting better so that you feel better. The nocebo effect is very similar. 
you think you're worse, and so you actually get worse. So sometimes we've got too much fear. Sometimes we've got too little fear. Fear can grip us individually. It can grip us throughout our lives. It can grip us as a group. But we don't want to live without fear. There are benefits to having it. It can keep us safe. It can keep us healthy. And too much fear can cause some really wacky stuff to happen. But what if we could control and better understand and perhaps cure our fear? I'm here with my friend, Dr. Ali Matu from Columbia University Medical Center. Hi. Hi, Trace. Good to be here. Thank you for coming. So this is complicated, but this is like yeah. your area of study. This is what I do. I'm a anxiety disorder specialist in New York City, so fear is my life. Oh, <laughs> sounds about right. So fear is sometimes good. It's sometimes bad. It's sometimes kind of fun. Um, but what is it that turns fear into kind of a need to seek medical professionals or so, psychological? Yeah, that's a good question. And just like you were talking about in um, some of the earlier episodes, fear is a natural part of life. We want to experience it. It's something that keeps us safe. The problem becomes when it is so distressing that it's hard for you to get through a normal everyday situation, or if it gets to the point where it starts limiting your life, something we call impairment. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you could have a shark phobia, but you're living in Kansas, probably isn't affecting you too much. But if you're living in an environment where that starts to play out day to day, causing a lot of problems, getting in the way of your life, that's when the time you probably come in to seek help for it. So it's like a context thing. So if I'm yeah. like, you, you mentioned Kansas. So if I live in Kansas and I, I work there, I'm not going to, and I have a shark phobia, not a big deal. But yeah. if I'm like, make my living as a surf instructor, yeah. that could really impair my lifestyle and, and my well-being. So then I would want to come and talk to somebody who could help me with exactly. that. Exactly. What I see a lot of the time is someone might be struggling with something for many years, but now because of the context of their life and the situation they're in, now it's a problem. Now they need some help for it. Okay. So it, it's not so much that I am afraid of this and therefore should seek help. It's yeah. I am afraid of this and it's affecting me in this way. Exactly. And that's hmm. usually what gets people motivated to do some of the treatment that we're going to talk about in a moment, which is actually kind of hard treatment to do. There are different fears. There are different phobias. There, But what's like the difference between a fear and a phobia, I guess? Fear is completely normal. Got it. You see a snake. You see... Um, you see anything? My ex girlfriend. <laughs> you on the see street. your ex girlfriend? Yeah, totally. I'm um, scared now. I'm you're going to be. You're supposed to be afraid in those situations. That's a survival mechanism you talked about a little bit earlier. Now, what makes it a phobia? What makes it a disorder? Is what we talked about before. It's getting in the way of your life. It's limiting what you can do. Okay. Okay. So, what kind of uh, like phobias or fears and things do you normally? work with all sorts of things you could have a uh, you can have develop an anxiety disorder problem related to so many things so panic disorder is one of them panic disorder is sort of the fear of fear Mm. it's the fear of all of those symptoms the heavy breathing feeling like you you can't catch your breath like you're the sweating the heat all of that kind of stuff all those physical symptoms of fear. You can have social anxiety. This is one that uh, people don't realize the degree to which it can get in the way of your life. Think about all the times today when you've had to interact with someone. Now imagine if that situation was so difficult for you and you, it produced so much anxiety, you might start avoiding those situations. Right. I'd rather stay at home. I'm exactly. Not, it's too much work to 
get over that fear in order to interact with other people. Totally. And that's exactly what happens with these anxiety disorders is it starts to limit what you can do in your life. And you see the range of things that people can do get smaller and smaller. And then you have obsessive compulsive disorder where you might get preoccupied with certain thoughts or certain images and then feel like you have to do something over and over again until it feels right. And OCD can take on so many different ways. It, it can be about the classical fear of contamination and feeling mm-hmm. like you have to clean things. Like washing your hands yep. and things like that. But it could also be really random stuff, like things like you know, related to electronics. I worked with someone who had a fear that their phone was on and it might have caught them hear- saying something bad. Mm. And so they would constantly check the phone. It can take on so many different areas. Wow. Um, you can also develop separation anxiety disorder where it's hard to be away from your parents and from your loved ones. Mm. Um, you can have a fear of heights, a fear of clowns, as you mentioned. Sure, fear sure. Of blood injections, the list goes on and on. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's just so many different things that one can be afraid of. So how can you work with all of these different fears? And why is it that some people develop phobias from some of these things, like clowns as an example, and, and other people don't? You know, I'm not really, like, clowns are creepy, I guess, but I'm not, like, afraid of them. I don't mm. avoid them. If I see one, I'm not, like, uh, I don't have, like, a reaction to that. So why is it that... Some people do. Some people just have a more of a predisposition to experiencing anxiety and fear. And so the whole process that you've been talking about this week, those emotional experiences play out in a much stronger way for these people. So you're mm-hmm. going through life kind of with the volume turned up oh. on fear. And sometimes you combine that with certain situations, and maybe something went poorly for you. Maybe Mm -hmm. you saw Jaws a little bit too young, Mm -hmm. or maybe you went through a social situation where you felt like you were being really judged or evaluated, and you felt really stupid or weird or strange. So what tends to happen there is these these things get paired up with one another. Mm -hmm. This situation is now associated with fear, and most people cope by avoiding that situation. So we never end up getting a chance to learn new information because we're avoiding these situations. So it sounds like classical conditioning. You know, exactly. Very similar to Ivan Pavlov and the dogs where you'd ring the bell and they yeah. would salivate, except for instead of something more innocent like a food reward, this is a fear response. So instead of encouraging it, you're actually discouraging it. Exactly, and it also plays in with Skinner's work. Mm-hmm. And it feel, it's reinforcing to avoid these situations. Sure. It actually makes you feel better to avoid them. Yeah. So naturally, you're going to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. So it's almost like, to use terms from earlier, some people just have the low road kind of on auto. Like yeah. they are going to hit that low road much quicker. Um, do people who have more fear also tend to have larger amygdalas? The it's possible, center? yeah. I mean, this is one of those interesting things where the early research was look, looked at Vietnam War veterans okay. and them coming back from this war, a lot of them actually who went on to develop PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, they actually had larger amygdalas. Now, we don't know if they went into war with a larger amygdala mm-hmm. and experienced trauma in a, in a more significant way or they experience more trauma and develop the larger amygdala. But what we do know, the brain is plastic. It responds to environments, and some people just have a different brain than someone else, and they might be wired to experience anxiety differently. Wow, that's so neat. So I have more of a personal story, personal question. So I uh, used to date a gal who was afraid of butterflies. Uh, So this kind of brings us to why some people have phobias and some people don't, you know? 
this it seemed like kind of an irrational thing to be afraid of for me. But for her, she could peg it to one very specific event, and that was when she was growing up. She fell asleep with the window open and the light on, and a number of moths settled onto her bed. Ooh. So when she woke up in the middle of the night, and she was very young, and moved... The moths just swarmed. Oh, and man. she didn't know what to do, and she freaked out. And yeah. to this day, she cannot, you know, see a moth or a butterfly without kind of having a very visceral fear response. Yeah. So that sounds very much like she paired this fear with, you know, kind of ongoing an ongoing struggle that she might have. Yeah. Yeah, so. absolutely. And I'm guessing that she's avoided these things ever since. Absolutely. And even the slight appearance of them moving. Yeah. Probably it's all brain. about it's all about the flutter. So yeah. like in the movie Lord of the Rings, when Gandalf has the little moth that he talks to, yeah. uh, she cannot watch that part of the movie. Yeah. She never has seen it. So she knows she has this fear. It's never really affected her life so it's not a disorder necessarily it's not a phobia you can easily avoid moths you don't encounter them all the time exactly so she just doesn't go to butterfly houses she's fine it's all good good. yeah but but let's say she wanted to you know handle this she wanted to kind of get over this fear what would she have to do well here's a cool thing is we can actually hack fear we can treat this i can treat this you can treat this and here's how we do it so there's this cool thing that happens when you jump in a swimming pool mm-hmm. right yeah. you jump in what's it feel like it's at cold first? water it's is cold and uncomfortable what do you do i i suffer with it <laughs> i just sit you there suffer with well yeah you but it do. gets better it gets better it doesn't yeah. it's not always that cold it, i i guess i get used to it you get used to it it's not like the water warms up at all i mean not all the time sometimes, no, sometimes it does maybe the sun comes out and sure sun yeah, yeah yeah but your body gets used to it that's this process called habituation basically our human bodies are built to get used to things that remain the same this is how we've been able to adapt to so many different climates around the world and why we can live everywhere like san we francisco habituate, like san yeah. francisco or new york or right. All sorts of places, but you guys have better weather. Sometimes. Yeah, especially, yeah. (laughs) So um, we can habituate, we can get used to things, and this is what we use to treat fear. So if your ex-girlfriend was coming into my office, what we would do is get an idea of all the different types of situations she's avoiding, Mm -hmm. and then what we would do is something called graduated exposure, exposing her to the exact type of thing that's creating the fear. But we do it in a gentle way. Okay. We start small. We probably start with a cartoon picture of a moth. Uh-huh. Not and, moving like a st- – No. Nope. Like just still and be like, oh, this yep. is okay. This is like fine. Like a drawing. And then yep. do you like slowly – Slowly start moving towards the thing that she's afraid of. So maybe we turn that into an animated GIF. Mm-hmm. And then maybe we morph that into a movie. Mm-hmm. Maybe then we move to real life moths, but being very far away. And then each time sitting with the situation until the fear goes up, sitting with it, and then waiting for it to come down on its own for habituation to kick in. It always kicks in. Mm. And this is where some of the new learning comes into play. This is the Pavlovian stuff kind of getting unlearned. And this is where new thoughts and ideas emerge that, oh, well, the moths don't actually 
come towards me, most of the time they're actually trying to get away from me. So okay. both those things come into play. We're uncoupling the anxiety that's been associated and helping people to develop a new, more realistic way of approaching these things. And this happens, of course, in a safe space, similar to what we were talking about earlier, where you can only really do this if the patient feels comfortable. And also yeah. they likely would have to have their own kind of willpower. They actually want Absolutely. it. You can't forcibly exposure therapy. No, no, you can't. And the classic mistake a lot of people do is say, oh, okay, I got it, I got it. And they jump to the most feared thing Ooh, no, no, no. and they try to do it once and they're like, no, I got afraid, it didn't work. The point of this is to do it gradually and to experience fear. Hmm. There's nothing I can do to eliminate fear from your life. I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, you know, we you, talked about we that. Talked be about bad. that. You need be bad. fear, it's good you for you. You need to survive. You need to experience it, and I'm here to say that we are built to experience fear. Mm-hmm. We can endure it. Yeah, so I guess that brings me to this question. What if you, Ollie, are afraid of heights, yeah. per se, and yeah. you have somebody who comes in and they're like, I'm afraid of heights, Can let's work on this. Yeah. And you're afraid of heights. How... How does that work? This has actually kind of happened to me. Okay. One one of the things about being an anxiety disorder therapist is I'm constantly working on my own anxiety. Got it. Because I have to do these exposures with people. We do something called modeling, which is demonstrating how to approach these things. So I have to approach it myself. I never had a fear of heights, but I did have a fear of sharks. Thank you, Jaws, for that. I don't know why my brother let me watch that when I was so young. Um, uh, It's... I have a fear of bees. Mm-hmm, I've mm-hmm. never had to face it yet. I've tried. Bees are great. Yeah. They are really good. You I know, I, I just, I, the catastrophic thought that enters my head is I'm going to get stung mm-hmm. and, like, my St- arm's going to explode. It's going to, yeah. like, yeah. I, I'm going to die. Swell up You're and die. die. Even though an allergist has told me I'm not allergic. Um, but here's, I'm going to share a weird story with you. Can okay, I do a weird I'm ready. Story? I'm ready. Right. Test 2 Plus, we're all, right. all about it. This is an exclusive here. We were talking about penis shrinking earlier. So penis shrinking. Well, is this, a... is, this is very much applies. Oh, God. All right. So when I was in high school, there was this exchange student, and for some reason, he started peeing on me in the bathroom. Uh-huh. Like, I went to go use a urinal, and then he started peeing on me. It was very scary. I ran out of, of, the, of the bathroom. Sounds like a bad experience. It was sure. not good. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, and so what ended up happening is I tried going into the bathroom. The next time, my heart started racing. Oh. I started sweating. And one of the things that happens when you experience fear, it kind of constricts muscles, uh-huh. it, you know, fight so or you, flight. So you couldn't in. use the bathroom in the way that you used to use the bathroom. That is a correct and accurate statement. So what I started wow. doing is avoiding urinals. Oh. Now, this worked through high school, through college, and then eventually I started to become a psychologist, and I had a patient who's experiencing obsessive compulsive disorder about contamination mm-hmm. and had a fear of urinals. So you both had a fear of urinals, but from different angles. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so what I ended up doing was I had to do my own exposure work ahead of his exposure work so we could get ready to the point where we were both facing that situation. Wow. So that's pretty, I mean, that sounds like kind of difficult for both you and your patient, but what about something like, there's like new technologies, uh, Mm -hmm. like virtual reality. Yeah. Could you do that with exposure therapy? Because it seems like you could make the perfect incremental raising of that bar in a virtual environment. You wouldn't have to go find, you know, 
the right bathroom or the right moth picture or something. You could just go into <laughs> VR and be it. like, this is it. This is what we have. And yeah. here's, the, here's the moth program, like the holodeck. You know, let's yeah. run through yeah, this. Yeah. Well, what's cool about VR is it's, it's going to allow us to do things that are sort of difficult for us to do right now. Like treating a fear of flying mm. is really hard in right. the modern world. I can't just go near a plane and through the security without a ticket anymore. So it's yeah. a little bit more costly to do that type of treatment. VR would really fast track that oh, and cool. help yeah. us to kind of pinpoint. The technology has to create a scene that's real enough that it's eliciting a lot of those physical symptoms of anxiety. Um, but the problem gets to something you talked about earlier, which is if you see a scary movie – Part of the appeal is knowing that you're in a safe place. Mm. One of those things also comes up with VR is if you're feeling like it's not real, like you can't really get into it, it's not really going to work. Sometimes what we find, though, is it doesn't take that much to create that fear and to do that exposure work. Um, With VR, we can do it. Sometimes we do a very low-tech solution, which is something called imaginal exposure, Mm. which is just you sitting there. Okay closing your eyes and imagining that spider that you're afraid of crawling up your leg. Oh, I don't like that. Like oh. zero to ten, you feeling anything I right now? I just felt like a little like weird-ass like tingly feeling. I was like, this isn't good. There's a spider <laughs> See, on me. It, it really doesn't take that much. Like right away. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. That's, no, that's not, I'm not big and that's now, weird. Now, if we that did that weird. a second time, you wouldn't feel as right. powerfully as third. And I would then be like, oh, going. I got it. He's yeah. going to tell me there's a spider. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's no spider. I know yeah. there's no spider. So. so sometimes we might do imaginal stuff. Um, sometimes we might do something like VR. But what I often find is it doesn't take too much to elicit the type of things that people might be afraid of. So just to round it out, make sure that, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about fear and whether it's good for you or bad for you. It seems like it's both good. It can be bad if it interferes with your whole life. And we're built to we're built to face it. We're built to experience it. We're built to be able to write it out. Just yeah. something I tell people all the time is every emotion that you experience, it's like a wave in the ocean. It doesn't exist and then sometimes it starts to crescendo and it peaks, but it's always going to crash onto the shore. It's never gonna be there forever. Got it. Oh, that's a good way to look at it. So just for fun to kind of round this out, what's like the most memorable disorders or things that you've worked on when it comes to fear? One that really just comes to my mind right away is um, treating this uh, phobia of pasta. That's pasta phobia. Amazing. Um, also worked with a surgeon who had a fear of um, having shaky hands, which would be a problem. Yeah, if yeah. You're a Did surgeon. he or she have shaky hands? Well, that's the thing is what we think and what we experience is often not necessarily reality. And so a part of this was us eliciting those things and making his hands extra shaky. Um, We had him hold a series of books to get his hands really worn out and then doing a practice surgery with um, some chicken. And mm-hmm. I got some of my other friends involved, my other psychology friends, and they were sort of whispering, I believe his hand is shaking. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So it ends up actually being really creative. But it's, I think It seems like kind of like psychological theater where we're creating <laughs> this experience so that yeah. we don't have to do it in real life. We're practicing. Yeah. But at the same time, just the practice is enough to elicit that emotional response and totally. therefore kind of get used to it, habituate to it. Exactly. You got it. That's so awesome. 
Guys, thanks for tuning in to Test Tube Plus this week. This was a huge episode about fear. I think we covered a whole bunch of really awesome stuff, and I would really like to thank Dr. Ali Matu for coming in. Thanks for having me. You can find him on Twitter, at Ali Matu. You can also come find me, if you like, at Trace Dominguez. Make sure you subscribe here on iTunes if you haven't already, and if you haven't, please throw us a rating. 